This podcast is really just a continuation of our first podcast to consolidate some of what we discussed by applying our understanding of bacteremia to three cases. So for the first case, you are covering CTU and receive a call about your patient who is day three of admission for acute exacerbation of COPD. She's on both steroids and doxycycline for this and appears to be improving. She has been afebrile, does not endorse any pain, and has been able to ambulate despite being on four liters of oxygen to maintain SATs at 92%. MedMicro is calling to let you know that your patient's blood cultures drawn on arrival have come back positive, one for two sets, with Viridin's group streptococci. Time to positivity, 48 hours. What are your next steps? Our three general steps for bactremia, as discussed in the last podcast, are 1. Repeat blood culture stat if you have a gram-positive pathogen isolated or an unclear source of infection. 2. Start effective therapy targeted to both the suspected source of infection and the bacteremia. And three, conduct appropriate investigations. So when discerning if we should get those stat repeat blood cultures, we look at what's growing and our clinical context. We have a gram-positive pathogen and unclear source of infection. COPD is a localized airway inflammatory process and does not cause bacteremia. So we have a gram-positive bacteremia of unclear source of infection. We would ask the team to repeat stat blood cultures for this patient. While we order those repeat blood cultures, knowing they can be helpful down the road, before we undertake step two, starting effective therapy targeted to the suspected source of infection in the bacteremia, we need to discern if this is contaminant or a true bacteremia. We've talked about some of our tools to do this. So how do we discern if this is a real bacteremia or not? First, we look at the microbe isolated, Viridin's group streptococci. Note that Viridin's group streptococci is a group of organisms with multiple included species, So if you get a species of strep and aren't familiar with it, it's important to look up the micro background to make sure that you know what you're dealing with. Reardon's group streptococci are common contaminants on blood cultures, but is also a group of organisms that are part of our Duke criteria pathogens. So we do need to evaluate our clinical context carefully. We look at sets positive and timed positivity. In our patient, we have one out of two sets positive suggestive of low inoculum, and we have a very prolonged time to positivity, pointing to a small inoculum size consistent with possible contamination. Next, we look at localizing symptoms and potential source of infection. Viridin's group streptococci hang out in the upper GI and the oropharynx and can cause abscesses of the GI and oral cavity, but can also innocuously colonize the skin. Our patient is not localizing symptoms concerning for an infectious process of any of the usual regions of the body in which Viridin's group strep would most plausibly cause infection. She doesn't have any reported dental abscesses or issues. She isn't localizing any GI symptoms. And assuming the original diagnosis of AECOPD is correct, she wouldn't have a lung abscess or empyema, which would be complications of pneumonia, a parenchymal process, not AECOPD, an airway inflammatory process. In the absence of an infectious source or concerning localizing symptoms, coupled with the long time to positivity and only one out of two sets being positive, as well as the pathogen isolated, we can discern this as most probably a contaminant. So because we have a probable contaminant and our patient is stable, we would not initiate treatment against Viridin's group streptococci empirically. We would monitor our patient and await our stat repeat blood cultures that we ordered when we took the phone call. We would expect these repeat blood cultures to be negative despite the patient having received no antibiotic therapy. This would confirm our suspicion of contaminant. And this illustrates why getting those stat repeat blood cultures before starting antibiotics can be so helpful. Okay, so now for case two. You're in a merge and managing a 22-year-old female patient who is presented with fever, chills, rigors, and flank pain. Blood cultures return positive 2 for 2 sets E. coli with a time to positivity of 12 hours. Urine culture is still pending and was fortunately done prior to antibiotics. The patient had been appropriately started on ceftriaxone after cultures and has received one dose so far. Past medical history is otherwise unremarkable. She has no previous surgeries. Her last antibiotic course was as a preteen for a dental infection. So what are your next steps? 
Well, our general three steps for management of bacteremia are, one, repeat blood culture stat if gram-positive pathogen or unclear infectious source, two, start effective therapy targeted to the source of infection and the bacteremia, and three, evaluate for further investigations. So let's start with one, repeat blood cultures if gram-positive pathogen or if the source of infection is unclear. In this 22-year-old female with suspected pyelonephritis and gram-negative bacilli bacteremia, we do not need to repeat blood cultures. Gram-negative bacilli are not considered contaminants, but are also not prone to metastatic foci. So repeating stat blood cultures will not help us rule out contamination, because we know it isn't contamination, and we aren't concerned about metastatic complications. She also has a clear source of infection, pyelonephritis, concordant with her blood cultures. For gram-negative bacteremias, we generally don't need to repeat blood cultures because we don't need to document clearance and we aren't worried about an insidious source of infection as long as we have a source that fits with the bacteria in the bloodstream. Right. So for this patient, we have no need for repeat blood cultures. What next? So next is on to step two. Start effective therapy targeted to the source of infection and the bacteremia. This is a young female with a probable monomicrobial pyelonephritis with associated bacteremia. She's already appropriately started on ceftriaxone. She's already on effective therapy, and we don't need to change her IV antibiotics. What we can consider is, given this is a low-risk infection and low-risk bacteremia, she can probably be switched to oral antibiotics pretty quickly. Right, another monomicrobial infection. So we know what bacteria we need to cover, thanks to our blood cultures. So what about further investigations? Well, that brings us on to step three. We don't really need further investigations for this patient unless there is concern for structural issues that necessitate imaging or if her infection fails to respond to therapy, as would be expected. And, you know, we might be worried about a source control issue. We have a gram-negative bacilli bacteremia that fits with localizing symptoms and suspected source of infection. At this time, all signs point to this being an uncomplicated bacteremia. We are not concerned for metastatic foci with gram-negative pathogens. We're also not concerned for insidious sources given the pathogen isolated, the clinical presentation, and the lack of risk factors. So we don't need to do further investigations at this time. Yep, in general, gram-negative bacteremias are just lower-risk bacteremias and often have clear sources. Once in a while, you'll get a complicated gram-negative bacteremia, but much less common than with gram-positive pathogens. All right, so on to case three. You are still on CTU, pulling those 26-hour shifts, and you admit a 72-year-old female patient with worsening mental status, tactile fevers, and observed chills per the family. Your analysis had demonstrated 3-plus leukes, 3-plus blood, and zero protein. On arrival to ER, temp is 38.1, and blood work shows an elevated white blood cell at 16.1, neutrophil predominant. Her CRP is 181. She endorses no pain. Lice and serum creatinine are normal. Blood cultures were drawn, and she had been started on ceftriaxone for a query UTI and eMERGE. Urine culture still pending. Past medical history is significant for overactive bladder and hypertension. She also had a recent pacemaker insertion three weeks ago for a third-degree heart block. You receive a call from MedMicro on call that blood cultures have just returned two for two sets gram-positive cocci and clusters. Time to positivity, eight hours. What are your next steps? Okay, well, this might be getting a little old by now, but what are our three general steps for bacteremia? One, repeat blood culture stat if gram-positive bacteremia or unclear source of infection. Two, initiate effective therapy for both the bacteremia and source infection. And three, further investigations. All right, so step one, repeat blood culture stat. We will repeat blood cultures in this patient because she has a gram-positive bacteremia and we also have an unclear source of infection. She's been diagnosed with possible pyelonephritis on the basis of nonspecific urinalysis findings and likely her gender and age, but she's not localizing clear pyelonephritis symptoms and gram-positive cocci and clusters are non-concordant pathogens with pyelonephritis. So we will repeat blood culture stat because our patient has a gram-positive bacteremia and an unclear source of infection. 
though we do expect our blood cultures to come back positive. It would be unlikely this patient would clear her blood cultures without antibiotics or that this is a transient bacteremia of minimal clinical significance. The fast time to positivity demonstrates a high inoculum, as does the fact that she was admitted with clear, persistent, systemic infectious features. And that last part sounds wordy. So what do we mean by this, that the blood culture results and clinical findings support that it's not a transient bacteremia? Well, we've talked before about how some patients can have a real bacteremia. For example, they grow Klebsiella or E. coli in their bloodstream, so we know it's not a contaminant. But it's transient and from mucosal compromise, and it clears by itself without antibiotics. And these bacteremias are of somewhat questionable clinical significance. But this patient came in with clear sustained infectious symptoms that are suggestive of a reasonable infectious inoculum, and her sustained infectious symptoms mean it's not a transient bacteremia. She didn't just throw some E. coli transiently across an inflamed gut that gets cleared rapidly by host defenses and doesn't really present much clinical risk. And concerningly, despite her clear systemic infectious features and her positive blood cultures, she doesn't have pain or localizing symptoms. So we would be worried about a deep source or central source like endocarditis for this patient something that definitely wouldn't clear on its own. So we would obtain those stat repeat blood cultures, but we would expect them to come back positive. Okay, so you've ordered your stat repeat blood cultures for a gram-positive bacteremia with source unknown. Now on to effective therapy. Right, we want to start effective antimicrobial therapy. This patient has probably staph aureus bacteremia, given the gram-positive cocci in clusters and the fast time to positivity. It would be pretty unusual for coagulase negative staph to grow in eight hours. It's just not a very virulent pathogen. So now we need to identify the source of infection in this patient without localizing symptoms to ensure that we're covering both the source infection and the bacteremia. No localizing symptoms means it's less likely to be a gut source or a polymicrobial source. It's more likely to be an insidious monomicrobial source. In general, the absence of localizing symptoms with a gram-positive bacteremia is a red flag for something like endocarditis. Okay, but how can you be sure? Maybe it is polymicrobial. So wouldn't we want to start with broader therapy and then narrow it later? If our patient was in septic shock, we're just admitting them and we don't have much data, we might consider treating broadly empirically, even if we have a gram-positive cocci in clusters and no localizing symptoms, just in case it's polymicrobial. But while we may occasionally cover broadly in true critically ill patients, initially, in general, as mentioned, polymicrobial infections usually do have localizing symptoms. Most of our polymicrobial infections are intra-abdominal or chronic wound infections or situations where host structural defenses have become so significantly disrupted that they permit overgrowth and infection with multiple bacteria. Those significant disruptions don't tend to hide. So the lack of localizing symptoms with the clear systemic features of infection and the bacteremia with a high-risk pathogen more often points to an insidious monomicrobial infection, like we said. So for this patient who's not critically ill, and in these circumstances, we would treat her as a monomicrobial infection. All right, so we have the suspected monomicrobial infection, and we can treat empirically with antibiotics just targeted to the staphylococcus in her blood. But if she isn't localizing symptoms, how do we actually identify the source? The source infection can affect duration of therapy as well as need for other interventions, so there are huge implications to knowing the source. Well, our next clue is her individual risk factors, just like when we were evaluating patients for sepsis NYD in our earlier podcast. Looking head-to-toe at individual risk factors can help us identify the source. We know hardware, recent procedures, injuries, and chronic conditions that impair host defenses can all predispose patients to infection. Our patient has a recent pacemaker insertion three weeks ago, a procedure, and hardware. We know this would have compromised host defenses, so we would start by looking at her pacemaker pocket. But usually eMERGE nurses would have helped her change into a gown, and someone would have noticed if the pacemaker pocket looked bad, and neither the family nor the patient said that her pacemaker pocket looked bad. Right, it's a starting point, so we would still evaluate the pacemaker pocket, which might look fine. But rather than reassure us that there's no pacemaker infection, this just tells us that there's no pocket infection. 
This could concern us that the infection might be on the leads, and that a transient bacteremia at home in the days following her procedure may have seeded her pacemaker leads, given the propensity of Staph aureus for biofilm formation and its love of hardware. That wouldn't have localizing symptoms, since it's basically a biofilm just spraying a continual spray of bacteria into the bloodstream, producing systemic signs and symptoms without local symptoms. So ultimately, with respect to appropriate therapy, we would presume that this patient without localizing symptoms does not have a polymicrobial source of infection, has a probable pacemaker lead infection based on her risk factors and presentation, and we would start vancomycin to cover broadly for staphylococcal species, and then reassess post-return of cultures. All right, so on to step three, further investigations. Right, our further investigations to identify source infection and any complications. So first, our patient came in having mental status changes. So we would probably start with a CT head to rule out stroke or embolic events, especially since we're querying a pacemaker infection for this patient. Then we would obtain an echo to try to confirm pacemaker lead infection, our suspected source. Okay, so now let's say our cultures came back and they're growing MSSA, which we were more or less suspecting anyways. This brings us to our bundle of care for staph aureus bacteremia. Treat, repeat, echo, and consult. Track. All right, so first, treat with optimal antibiotics. We had started vancomycin empirically as part of our general bacteremia management, but we know that beta-lactams have better outcomes than vancomycin for MSSA bacteremia. So we would at this point tailor our antimicrobial therapy to MSSA and change to cefazolin. Second, we would repeat blood cultures every 48 hours until clear. We already repeated blood cultures stat when we took the call, but we know with staph aureus bacteremia we continue to repeat blood cultures every 48 hours until we document clearance. We will continue to order repeat blood cultures accordingly. Third, we're going to order an echo. We already said this will be important for this patient as she has no clear source of infection, but has staph bacteremia and a pacemaker, which we are suspecting as the source. So echo will help us confirm a pacemaker lead infection. Depending on our own institution's protocols, it could be the patient will start with a transthoracic echo and then get a transesophageal echo, or they might go straight to transesophageal echo. But just a quick note here that the lesser sensitivity of transthoracic echo compared to transesophageal echo at finding vegetations is even more pronounced when there is indwelling hardware or devices. So patients with hardware almost always need TEE unless the TTE is actually positive. Even TEE has about 10% chance of false negative when there's hardware involved. And finally, consult. We will consult infectious diseases, which, as mentioned, is associated with reduced mortality for staph aureus bacteremia. ID will assist with optimizing management and evaluation of metastatic foci and help us feel confident that we are truly covering the source. They can also advocate for prompt investigation of any new localizing symptoms. If echo is negative, they can also help us with further investigations. We can tell given the pathogen isolated and the lack of localizing symptoms, coupled with the patient's risk factors, that this will be a complicated bacteremia, so ID support is imperative. So again, to summarize some main bacteremia learning points here. One. Our general approach to Bactremia is to repeat blood culture stat if we have gram-positive pathogens or an unclear source, to start effective therapy directed at both the source infection and the Bactremia, and further investigations as appropriate. Two, gram-negative Bactremias are in general lower risk than gram-positive Bactremias for complications. Three, gram-positive Bactremias, especially with our Duke criteria pathogens, are higher risk for endocarditis as well as other deep infections and metastatic foci of infections. And four, Staph aureus bacteremia has our four-pronged bundle of care to support our best possible patient outcomes. Treat, repeat, echo, and consult ID. Track. This four-pronged bundle can also be useful for enterococcus bacteremia or other Duke pathogen bacteremias. So that concludes part two of our Bactremia podcast. Thanks for listening.